Hey, true believers, tis the season to gift yourself Marvel Unlimited. Right now, you can get a year of Marvel Unlimited for only $55. Don't miss out on this very special offer because it's only running until the end of the year. And with over 28,000 issues, Marvel Unlimited is the place to read your favorite Marvel stories all together. And remember, new comics are available just three months after they're in stores. So... Get on over to marvel.com slash unlimited and use the code YEAR455 at checkout. That code is Y-E-A-R-F-O-R-5-5 at checkout. Automatic renewal and other terms apply. Go read comics. Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new comics on sale December 16th, 2020. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. H&M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. And this is the Marvel show where we tell you all about the brand new comics that are coming out every single week. We're talking about new comics on sale the 16th of December, 2020. What a year. Feels so close to being done, but we have some good-ass comic books to talk about today. Not only the new books that we are very excited to share with y'all, but we have an amazing guest for our reading club later in the episode. We have Mr. Ricky Purden, the godfather of my daughter. <laughs> that is truth. He is my my daughter, Catherine Grace's godfather. He was also in my wedding. He is also director of talent relations or he's got he's the also the godfather of like marvel comics art yeah <laughs> now yeah he, yeah he kind of helps shepherd uh the art and we're gonna hear about that when we talk to him but his reading club pick is a great story it is from amazing spider-man it's called round robin the sidekicks revenge it's a classic from the early 90s we'll get into that further as we go along uh tucker tell me something cool you are such a movie fan have you seen mank no, no mank yet. What? No mank yet. But I, I, I think uh, I think this coming weekend, I'm going to dive into some mank. I do have good news for you, though, on another front. Finally caught up with the old Mando. I, I dove in. I went ask. for it. Yep, I went for it. Uh, decided to dive in. Wow. Uh, what, a, what a thing. Uh, then Dr. Mandible, uh, how now that that's like weeks, weeks behind, it feels like ancient history in the, the world of the Mandalorian, but Dr. Mandible is my pick for best new character in all of fiction. (laughs) The Mandalorian? The, no, the Mandible. That's what I'm tuning in for. Dr. Mandible is like a big old insect dude who plays card game yeah just sitting across the table from amy sedaris you kidding me i mean come on yeah the best the coolest Uh, if you are not caught up on the mandalorian we're sorry that's not really a spoiler anything there yeah the show's weird it's great it's fun all right we have two tweets that i wanted to read in here this episode one is from mr titanium at mr titanium 18 who said i saw this at my local comic shop he posted a picture of modok head games number one and he continues, he said, and I heard you on Marvel's pull list talk about it. Well, gush about it, really. And you may have convinced me to try it. He's so bonkers. That is one guaranteed sale of Modoc head games <laughs> caused by yours truly. Oh, That's yeah. Just yeah. One. Number two <laughs> comes from Boomer Man Guido at Old Man Guido, who says, I bought Modoc and honestly, I love his odd job esque type feel, but the book lived up to your shilling. LOL. Yes. See, I'm making it happen, Tucker. That's what we're doing here. Yeah. 
Boomerman continues. Uh, this is uh, a tweet that sort of encompasses both of the shows that I do, but I wanted to read it here. He said, just went through all that Sirius XM has on the service and now going through the older podcasts. And he says, my daughter and I watched episode two of Marvel 616 because of this week in Marvel. So thank you guys and gals for doing what y'all do. Thank you for checking out Marvel's pull list and this week in Marvel and all our shows on Sirius XM. Boomer man. We really appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. You know what else we appreciate? Brand new comics. Give us your money. Open the wallets because we've got four big picks for you this week. Tucker, you want to kick it off? Oh, boy, do we. Yeah, I do want to kick it off. And we're kicking it off uh, in what I would say is now classic polist fashion with Immortal Hulk. This is issue number 41. It is written by Al Ewing with pencils by Joe Bennett, inks by Roy Jose and Bellardino Bravo, colors by Paul Mounts and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Oh, man. Amidst a series of what feel like threshold moments and threshold issues where big changes happen, where big new characters are introduced or reintroduced, or there's a huge you know, step forward for either the Hulk or someone in his circle, in his close circle that we've been introduced to so well across the series, this is another one of those moments where the pacing of the issue just feels so expertly done, uh, where you have this awesome throwdown that's kind of at the center of it. What happens before, what happens just after, uh, a conversation that just happens just after. And then where we land is just so, so exceptional and, you know, continues somehow to be shocking, continues to be strange and unnerving and troubling 41 issues in, which is a huge compliment. I, I cannot say enough about this series. This issue is titled The Man Downstairs. And as usual, you know, the way that it's structured with the credits page, the title of the issue itself coming on the very last uh, kind of with the very last image of the issue on the last page it always hits home and this issue in particular it really does uh in in a huge way what a series i think we're officially now that we're 41 issues in i think we we've been saying it since probably issue number five how this series is going down in history but i think now that we have the clout of 41 issues behind us it is more than official at this point so when we get to an issue like this it's one that you just know you're going to continue to appreciate as the years go by it's just excellent stuff yeah and look we were blessed to have an issue of immortal hulk this week we are doubly blessed to have another issue of Immortal Hulk because we have a King in Black Immortal Hulk tie-in issue, and it is also written by Al Ewing. The art in this issue is by Mr. Aaron Cooter, who has done some incredible work with Ghost Rider and Fantastic Four and a bunch of other series of late. Uh, it's got color by Frank Martin and Eric Arciniega and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. There's very little dialogue or lettering, so Corey gets off uh, a little easy in this one. It opens with just, "'Twas the night before Christmas." <laughs> and that's the setup. It's the night before Christmas. It's New York City. We see the dragons that Null has brought with him, his symbiote dragons. They are beating down on the city and it's it's snowing out and from there it's just an artistic tour de force by mm -hmm. by aaron look i'll be honest uh, aaron's a friend um someone I, I really adore personally and professionally this is like just a, a master class in how to tell a story with no dialogue how to broadcast emotion and feeling and sadness and horror and happiness and consequences it is it's basically about hulk and right now as we know from the recent events of the hulk he's in a bad way 
He's uh, lost a lot of pieces of himself. And the personality that's that's outward in this is the Savage Hulk, which is the childish persona of the Hulk. So he's big. He looks different. He looks skinny and awkward. Um, and he lashes out like a toddler. He doesn't have the same language capabilities. He's brash. And it's basically just Hulk versus symbiotes in New York City during Christmas. And it is sad and it is sweet. And man, I this is one of my favorite issues of the year. This goes down easily as one of my favorite holiday books of all time, maybe my favorite. It is so perfect the way it quickly flows through the story. And it's not just a, a nasty, sad Christmas story, which is easily what could have been, but it does have sweet moments. And I don't want to give anything away, but if, if you just need something special around the holiday season, read this book. It's perfect. I, I will say that it is. It's a perfect comic book. It's the dream pairing. Like that's a combination that I didn't even know I needed. And of course you need it. Like when you put Aaron Cooter on an immortal Hulk book, of course it's perfect. Yeah. And it, we don't lose any of the, like the body horror. We don't lose anything that you would get in a regular issue of immortal Hulk. It is, it is just, man, I, I freaking love that issue. It's so good. Uh, I'm going to go right now and give you my second pick of the week because it is New Mutants number 14. It is the debut on New Mutants for the new team of Vita Ayala and Rod Reese. Uh, this is Dynamite. So friggin' good. What a week for art. Like what a spectacular week for mm -hmm. art across the board. Rod in here this is kind of one of those books he was born to do, uh, especially when you have a character like Warlock on the team. You get some of that Bill Sienkiewicz action, some of the weirdness, some of the just the fluidity. You get the dreaminess of it all. It's scratchy and weird, but it's also very, very emotional. And the storytelling is so clear. It's This is, I think, the book that Rod was born to do. And Vita, I mean, look, we've had Vita on the show before numerous times. We've talked about their books. Vita crushes it here the cast for this includes numerous generations of younger mutants but it gives it a purpose it gives it a sense of like belonging in this new krakoan society that i didn't know we were missing didn't know we needed and here it is to fill in this huge gap and we will be giving out tons of pulleys this week our, our weekly awards p-u-l-l-i-e if you want to hashtag that and post them out there like our friend karis pollard does the pulley i would give this one is for biggest uh-oh final page of the week because it's a doozy oh yeah uh, all right, now I am closing out our picks of the week with a Star Wars book. This is Star Wars Darth Vader number eight. It's written by Greg Pak with art by Raffaele Yenko, colors by Niraj Manan, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Uh, we are in the middle of a trial for Darth Vader. He essentially got on the wrong side of his boss, and now his boss is making him do a bunch of stuff to get him back to his good graces. Uh, how exactly that happens, uh, the Emperor essentially has uh, cast him off to Mustafar to go on a journey, both literal and psychological. And that allows us to get to the essence of what this entire series has been. And beyond that, how incredibly well Greg Pak understands this character, understands Star Wars. There's something about it where you just see, um, you know, in this sprawling epic, 
it's really honestly hard to imagine for me how someone can source material from so much from not just what's in the films, but what's been in discussion for years and years and years and how people understand these characters and in ways playing into that and in other ways playing against that. It's really an incredible feat. But this issue, I think more than anyone before, juxtaposes the Darth Vader of the present with the Darth Vader in the experiences that he's had in the past, whether that was in his previous life as Anakin Skywalker or in moments like his final showdown with Obi-Wan Kenobi on the Death Star. The way that we jump back and forth between reality and memories, how they play into each other, how Greg and Raffaele manage to pull this off creatively is just an incredible, incredible feat. It's a huge undertaking, and I would say for Raffaele especially, this is a gorgeous entry, not just because of the way that it manages to tell that story in two parts at the same time, but in the kind of darkness that's imbued in the lines. There's something rotten around so much of what Darth Vader experiences, and there's just something about the way that Raffaele draws a crazy monster or draws the face of Obi-Wan Kenobi. There's so much to be explored in this issue. I love it so much. I love this entire story arc. I love this series a ton. It is just so, so excellent. I will take us now straight into our pulleys this week, the first of which will be doled out to Black Cat number one. This is Queen in Black part one, and the cat came back. We got a new Black Cat number one issue right here, and it is so much fun. Look, we are both huge fans of Jed McKay and the work that Jed had been doing with Felicia Hardy beforehand, but now to get Felicia thrust right into the middle of all the King in Black action, and I do mean right into the middle. We are right in the center of essentially issue number one of King in Black. Uh, I was really impressed and surprised at how closely the narratives followed each other and how we were able to see it from a new perspective from Felicia's perspective. It was really, really cool. And then we see essentially how she is going on a new heist and how that's tied into King and Black, how it's tied into Null, specifically what she's going to steal from Null. It is so much fun. And that way, I'll just go for conceit of the week because it's a heist the likes of which I haven't seen before, certainly, and it is so much fun. Oh, man, that issue is so good. I'm loving all these King of Black tie-ins. What is not a King of Black tie-in is our next book, Captain America number 26. And it gets my pulley for Return of the Week with our boy Rolk, a.k.a. Red Hulk, a.k.a. Best Hulk with a Mustache, <laughs> General Thaddeus Ross. He's back. And he's a big, scary red boy. I'm loving just everything that Ta-Nehisi Coates. He's just digging into all kinds of fun Marvel Universe background to pull stuff together. We also get a really great origin story for Peggy Carter and how she's involved in all this stuff happening right now. So definitely check it out. Oh, yeah. Next up, we have Deadpool number nine. Gerardo Sandoval does the art on this. And holy cow. I mean, that is a dream pairing. Gerardo doing this book and specifically doing Kelly's take on Deadpool, which has so much kind of monstrous influence to it. There's a specific choice that's being made here in terms of how Deadpool is kind of being visualized. There's something going on. He's in the bone beast dimension, fighting monsters and doing crazy things. He has kind of this like lightning that's kind of coursing across him throughout the entire issue. It adds so much energy to it. And really the way that Gerardo dives headfirst into the action 
here is gorgeous. I am a huge fan, and in that way, that just might be like artistic kind of choice of the week. Um, really beautiful issue, and of course, it's paired with Kelly's uh, wonderfully strange and off-kilter Deadpool. Yeah, uh, I'm going to give a pulley to this one for having the best and maybe first mention of the Bone Zone in a Marvel comic. <laughs> I will leave it at that. Y'all have to read it to find out how it's used. Uh, all right, let's go to Fantastic Four number 27, which I realized as I read this book, I was like, man, Dan Slott's run on FF is so friggin' good. Really, really love it. And this issue has three artists and they collectively get my pulley of the week for widest array of cool weird alien designs for the week uh, it's rb silva juan and ramirez and zay carlos there's just some really gnarly alien things happening throughout this issue that i'm like i look at i'm like what what even is that and i love it it's so good yeah um more weird stuff in iron man number four in this issue we dive into some really weird stuff that's going on with patsy walker but overall i want to give like best burgeoning dynamic slash relationship in the marvel universe right now for me is between patsy and tony it's weird it's unusual it's strange the twists and turns that it has taken so far and where we will go i have no idea but uh it's very very unusual and i am uh, i'm really into it I'm going to use a little bit of wrestling lingo for my next pulley that I give to Magnificent Ms. Marvel number 17 because our friend Saladin Ahmed writes my favorite face turn of the week. Mm. That means uh, when a bad guy turns to a good guy. And in this case, it was a good guy who turned to a bad guy who's back to being a good guy. <laughs> uh, and that goes to Dumb Dumb Dugan, one of my favorite characters. He's got a great mustache, wears a cool hat. And finally, gets his business sorted out in this uh, issue. He's involved in some stuff with the agents of Cradle who are trying to stop younger superheroes from superheroing, younger people with powers from getting out there. And we see what happens when he really comes face to face with Ms. Marvel in this issue. Oh, yeah. Next up, we have Savage Avengers number 16. This issue is among the biggest in scale. There's like a crazy kind of dragon fight that we dive headfirst into as we start the issue. And what I really, really appreciated most here, there's been a ton of talk, obviously, about Black Knight in you know recent months and things like that. This issue really starts to dig into what makes that character so cool for me. And that kind of is what does it uh, amidst all the great magic and Conan stuff going on in here juggernaut etc that is a standout character for me and so uh, this really makes it a special read as i continue to personally get to know that character a little bit more it's really really interesting cool yeah this issue includes a little appearance by my favorite bar in the marvel universe mm. which man i just love that place anyway <laughs> uh we've got more king and black action right now with symbiote spider-man king and black number two this issue i'm just gonna straight up and give a pulley for the best j jonah jameson moments we've had in in a little while peter david writing jonah is pure gold it is the perfect version of jonah jameson that you have in your head that's what peter writes that's what we get a plenty of in this issue um and it's, it's a story set in the past that is tied to what's going on with king of black in the present uh but it's it's really cool rocket raccoon and kang show up but those jonah moments whoo 
Oh boy. I am right there with you. Next up, we have Taskmaster number two. Jed is great at writing the kind of like, not bad person, but certainly like morally not perfectly clean type Taskmaster lead is characters. a bad person, Tucker. Yeah. Okay, okay. I'm trying there's to I'm trying to weave in like, Black Cat in there as well. <laughs> is what I'm trying Black to do. Black Cat has had moments where she's a very bad yes. person. Uh, there she, is yes, something, yeah. There's yeah. something about that that Jed just taps perfectly into, and I really, really love it. This issue features a wild throwdown between Taskmaster and Hype. Hyperion. There is also a bunch of Phil Coulson in this issue, which is super fun. As well, there's like a comic shop in this issue, which is super fun, and comic reading and Avengers comics and things like that. It's really, really wild and uh, a great, great, really fun read. And if you read this and you have not seen Phil Coulson a lot in the Marvel Comics universe, and you're like, is his nickname Cheese? It is. <laughs> and it's my favorite. It's one of my favorite things about Coulson in the Marvel universe. It's that his nickname is Cheese. <laughs> All right, two more books to go this week. We've got Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood, number two. If you missed out on the first issue, you better go get that first issue because it's really dang good. And this one is also awesome. Three stories in here. Amazing creators such as Vita Ayala, Saladin Ahmed, Kev Walker, Chris Claremont, Greg Land, Salvador LaRocca. Tons of talent in here. Uh, I'm going to give a pulley to this issue for grossest smell description of the week uh at one point wolverine is saying uh there's a story with wolverine and, and the villain arcade wolverine says that arcade smells like gun oil and circus peanuts and <laughs> i hate circus peanuts i think they're like i i can i can feel them and i smell them and then you add the gun oil is nasty af Great job, Saladin Ahmed, on getting that in my head. Uh, but then on the flip side, this also I'm going to give a pulley to this one for warm fuzzies across the board with classic vibes from all these stories. Even with all the blood, you know, you've got Sabretooth in here and Wolverine and, and Arcade and um, a Chris Claremont, you know, Wolverine story. So while you have a lot of red blood, you also have some classic feeling stories. Hey, more red on the way. Wrapping up our pulleys this week, wrapping up our books this week with X-Force number 15. And that red comes in the form of Omega Red, a little BTS info here. Um, the stuff going on with Omega Red in the Dawn of X, now moving, looking forward to Reign of X. That's something that I remember hearing about super early on in behind closed doors meetings at Marvel HQ um, about these plans that are in store for Omega Red, how Omega Red obviously comes to Krakoa, what the rest of the mutants think of him, obviously all the long history, and then where that's going to go. And it was, I remember I would run around the office telling people about this idea and how awesome it was, how cool and how excited I was. We're starting to get drips of that. And the journey that we're beginning here is really incredible. Obviously, Benjamin Percy and Josh Guisara are two of the best going right now. This one, though, gets my pulley for... Uh, it's a it's a double. It's for Beast of the Week. And by that, Ooh. I mean lowercase b and capital B because we get some awesome Joshua Kassara monster action in here. And then we, of course, get the one and only Hank McCoy as well. Some great Hank McCoy stuff in here. He's a, he's a character that I adore and that I've been uh, hankering for more of, pun intended, lately. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, before we move on to the collections, Tucker, 
Uh, I want to give one more shout out to uh, Karis Pollard, who has been doing incredible work posting her hashtag pulleys across Twitter. So it's hashtag P-U-L-L-I-E. She's getting some great pulleys out there. Uh, Badass Fish of the Week. She posted one. Uh, Gore of the Week. Best New Team. Creep of the Week. More listeners, let us know if you're you're posting your your hashtag pulleys. Uh, I'll give you. I've I've got stuff. I can send you digital codes or something. I don't know. I'll find something. Uh, I want to see more pulley action on Twitter. Uh, yeah. So please send your pulleys out on Twitter with hashtag p u l l i e. You can also email them to us. Our email address is pulllist at marvel That's p u three l's. I-S-T at Marvel.com. <laughs> P-U-L-L-L-I-S-T at Marvel.com. Because that doesn't look confusing when I look at it on my computer screen. <laughs> All right. Now, that's what we have for individual issues this week. That's what we have for pulleys this week. Now, looking forward to collections available in print this week. There's a bunch of great stuff, as always. I might shout out... There's a the X-Men God Loves Man Kills extended cut in here, which is an all-time classic. Um, if you haven't read that one, that is a uh, uh, comes highly recommended. Not just by me. Don't take my word for it. It's good. No, the, People they should agree. 100% take your word for it. You're the host of a dang comics <laughs> podcast. Okay, okay, okay. I, there's a storied legacy of people thinking that that book is pretty dang good. And it is. is. <laughs> uh, there are also some pretty dang good books up on Marvel Unlimited. Web of Venom Wraith number one is awesome, especially if you're getting excited about King in Black. Uh, there's some Empire books in there and plenty more. Uh, check out the full list on marvel.com but now uh make sure you have your marvel unlimited fired up because you're going to read issues 353 through 358 of amazing spider-man we're going to talk to ricky purden about that and so much more right now ricky purden as i live and breathe welcome to marvel's pull list how are you oh man i'm so good i just got back from vacation so i'm catching up on things but one of the things i did while i was on vacation was read some Spider-Man comic books. Yeah, that's very exciting because we are here to talk about a story I loved as a kid. Mm -hmm. It is an amazing Spider-Man arc called Round Robin, the sidekick's revenge, Yes, which I thought was like the biggest story in the world when I was 10 years old. I'm very excited. We'll get into more of everything with you, Ricky, but Tucker, have you read this story before? No, this is my first time. What a wild ride it was. Mm-hmm. Literally from page one, yeah. I was like, this is kind of different. This is not <laughs> the kind of like usual Spidey story that I would have expected. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, Ricky, tell us what your role is at Marvel and sort of exactly what that means, what you do at Marvel. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm the director of talent relations at Marvel. That means, you know, I work with our editorial group and other lines of business to find artists mostly uh, for different projects, whether it's interiors or covers or coloring or someone needs a design for our character um, that will show up maybe in a video game and then show up in a comic later. All that stuff, uh, I'm here to help uh, recruit new talent and keep currently working talent busy. Uh, Ricky Purden um, is a ding-dang delight. One of the best, um, a true MVP around the old house of ideas. Thanks, um, man. Uh, I, Ricky, you, you have filled in in the past to be a very, very kind and gracious guest and co-host of the show. So I am very excited to be here um, and uh, talk to you myself. 
Yeah, thanks, man. I learned it from watching you. <laughs> uh, Ricky, why did you choose this arc out of the um, thousands and thousands and thousands <laughs> of Marvel comics that we have? Like you said, this was important to me when I was a kid, the story. Um, and I haven't reread it in 15, 20 years. And so I wanted to check it out again and revisit it. You know, I grew up reading comics like you guys, and I didn't read a whole lot of Marvel comics. But I had a friend, a, a good friend in elementary school who who bought a lot of Marvel stuff. So this buddy would let me read his Marvel comics when I would come over on the weekends. And he had this arc. Um, I think he might have been missing one issue of it. But the, the fact that it packed so many characters, so many guest characters in, and covered so much ground, it had such cool designs, cool new characters, and stuff that wasn't like anything else at the other companies that I was reading comics from, just kind of stuck with me. Like, it, it, this is really packed with a lot of stuff. And this was at a time when... You know, Marvel, normally during the summer and part of the fall, would double ship their books. I guess the thinking was kids were out of school and, you know, would be more willing to spend more money on stories. So this was part of that. This was like, I think it shipped every other week uh, at the time. So that summer, that fall, whatever, was like, ah, so much craziness happening every other week. It's nuts. Yeah, that's why I picked this book. You know, it's kind of cool because I didn't even really think about the business aspect of why it was shipping so often. I just thought it's Spider-Man. And we have three other Spider-Man titles, but let's do more Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, for me, both as a kid or until you just said that, I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Right, right. Yeah. it's You have to follow the money. Follow the money back. I don't think Marvel was the only company that did it, but it was always on the biggest books. And Amazing Spider-Man's obviously one of their biggest books. So, When did you know that kind of thing? <laughs> Is that something that you like had you were like so tuned into at the time that you had the ability to like figure out and say, oh, I can see what they're doing here it's strategically in the publishing world. Or is that something like now, you right. know, <laughs> that that was the plan? Tucker, I have so much stupid comic book knowledge in my head. <laughs> I thought I had everything. I knew most everything about comics, but I think I learned that fact specifically from Tom Brevoort recently. So I'm getting more information. It's 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 great. My, my 10-year-old self is, is giddy about it. Speaking of 10-year-old selves, and I was texting you about this, Ricky, I very distinctly remember where I was when I was buying these issues because yeah. I was a kid at this point on Long Island, and there was a video store, Franklin Square Video, gigantic video store, like, oh. or at least in my memory it is, right? Yeah, it's probably right. like the size of my office right here. Yeah. <laughs> and they had everything. They had like the downstairs for all the adult videos. They had the right. horror section with the amazing covers that were like, yes. that scared the bejesus out of me and all that stuff. But they also had a couple of repurposed video shelves yeah. for comic books. This is 1991. Comic books are super popular. They're everywhere. Everywhere. And so I remember very specifically Punisher Warzone by uh, John Romita Jr. and Chuck Dixon uh -huh. coming out at this time and buying that there because it had the, the cool bullet hole cover and buying these issues at this video store and just being blown away by exactly what you were talking about, Ricky, the number of characters and like, you're like, oh, there's the Punisher and Spider-Man and who the frick is Darkhawk and right. oh man, it's like all these characters. And it, this was so cool because it struck such nostalgic uh, chords for me. You know, we're talking about the lineage of like when you read this and, and how it affected you. Where were you in your fandom? How familiar were you with like XYZ character that might have popped up for a panel or two? Were you still early on or were you pretty in deep at this point? I think by this point, I like I knew who Spider-Man was. I think I knew Night Thrasher and Nova from other comics that my buddy would pick up or that I picked up. Like I picked up Night Thrasher number one when it came out. But there were still other characters in here and there, and there were elements of continuity that I didn't understand. Like I didn't understand 
if it said, you know, check out Moon Knight number eight for this backstory on this character, at the time in my head, that, that didn't make sense to me. I thought it was just trying to get me to buy another comic. And I was like, no, I'm not going to buy Moon Knight. But it, it was like a, a few years later that it, it struck me where once I had I had a copy of a book that the editor box said, go pick up this book. So I went and picked up that book and flipped through it. And I was like, oh, this moment happens in this comic and then it happens over here in this comic. So when that continuity came together, when I realized that continuity was important to the story, it, it opened my eyes to a lot of other possibilities for this kind of stuff. So it was still early enough in my fandom that um, I didn't understand certain aspects of it, regardless of, of which characters showed up. But looking back now, I'm like, man, like the real reason I was so excited about this wasn't because of the continuity or any of that stuff, which there is a lot of continuity in this story. It was how many characters they packed in here and how many characters they exposed you to in the Spider-Man tone, quote unquote, that safe superhero tone. Because Punisher, like you said, was showing up in a different book, but it was dark. And uh, Night Thrasher dealt with stuff that probably wouldn't get dealt with in a Spider-Man comic. So putting it all inside the the, the shape of Sp Amazing Spider-Man really stood out to me too. That said, there's some stuff in here I was surprised when I reread yeah. it. Like, <laughs> this was in a, a Spider-Man comic that I, because I, I've mentioned this on this show and other places before, like I was reading Punisher comics as a child, right. as a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, <laughs> right. and reading Punisher War Journal and Punisher. Th that was normal. But then in Spider-Man, and we'll get into some of that stuff later, I was surprised. Right, oh, right. Oh my yeah. gosh. I think in the first issue, Punisher shoots a guy dead. He definitely does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> wild. Um, so also thinking about Amazing Spider-Man, and I'm looking at this now, this is a weird place for Amazing Spider-Man because Todd McFarlane had left. This is two or three issues after Eric Larson leaves yep. um, Amazing Spider-Man. David Michelinie, who's the longtime writer of Amazing Spider-Man at this time, he's not writing this arc. And he, he writes almost every issue in almost a hundred issue span from like the late 200s to the late 300s. He's on almost every single issue. But this is a chunk where he does not write it. And this is just before Carnage is introduced. So it occupies this really weird space in this arc of Amazing Spider-Man. And, you know, most importantly, I think in my mind, is it is drawn by Mark Bagley. Yes. Six issues. Double shipping. Mark Bagley drew them all. I think he laid out one of them, but that's still, it's crazy. And Mark maybe has gotten faster actually these days you know most people know him from the ultimate spider-man stuff but he's just kind of like one of those perfect marvel artists you know for a certain generation of people he got to start i think it was in 85 after that uh, it was a talent search contest uh, that marvel ran and so mark applied for it and won and he's just been working with marvel forever now but the work ethic and the detail and the the storytelling that he puts in all of his work is all on display here he's got 15 characters in that single page across like you know seven panels, but it all makes sense. And it moves so quickly and just like eating it up as a kid, like, yes, yes, more and more. So he's a beast on this thing. And the, the covers are cool too. Bagley uh, penciled all the covers and I think they got different inkers on a bunch of them. Like Eric Larson did ink a cover. And I think Klaus Janssen inked a cover. Um, so yeah, he was doing the covers too. Yeah. Um, Mark's first work that for us that I could see is Night Mask number nine from the middle of 1987 when he really starts becoming pro. But I looked at what he had done in this span of time because, yes, like you said, this is shipping twice a month, Amazing Spider-Man, which he's penciling. He's also drawing new warriors at the same time. <laughs> That's great. At, like every issue during this time period, he's doing at least three comics a month. At one point, he's also doing a story for Marvel Comics Presents. He'd also done annuals and stuff like yeah. in this time period. It's wild. So he's like 
not even five years into his career doing all of this. This is a guy who's now been doing that for another 25 more years. Just incredible. Yeah, One of the greatest yeah. of all time. Yeah, yeah. Also on display here is his design sense. They he, they introduce a whole bunch of new characters and concepts in this arc. Um, so it's not just the storytelling; it's his design work too. It's, it's very cool. I feel like one day people are gonna see him like a Kirby kind of in, in terms of just his output, how much and, and how much he's like synonymous with the look, quote unquote, of Marvel comics. I totally agree. That's something that we've talked about in the past. His output is unbelievable, and it it, it is become this recurring theme for me thinking about Mark Bagley of like, that's the closest we have to superhuman <laughs> at Marvel comics in the, in the real world, in, in terms of what he's able to do. Ricky, you mentioned something about his design sense that I very interested to hear you talk about because you have worked in, you know, a bunch of different capacities in comics for a very, very long time. When thinking about design sense or acting or ability to portray action or the kind of unique panel layout that someone might have an intuitive sense for, is that something that when you're looking at an artist or a new artist or something like that, that you individually see and note and understand? Um, how do you, when you're reading a book, how do you understand it in, in those terms? How do you read it in kind of those different kind of columns, I guess? I guess everybody has strengths and weaknesses, right? And there are only a handful of artists who can hit every box professionally and with great skill. So it's okay when some artists aren't the best at, you know, a panel layout. It's okay if an artist isn't the best at inking or understanding light sources or remembering to make the environment clear. It's when someone combines all those things that you see right away. You're like, oh, that's a great storyteller. Mark Bagley's a great storyteller. Adam Kubert. Uh, Steve McNiven, these guys know how to do all those things at once. But you you touched on a point which is interesting because I took over this role from our current editor-in-chief, C.B. Sobolski. And so C.B. has this great intuitiveness when it comes to artists where he'll look at something and say, okay, that person isn't quite there yet. They're not completely ready. They don't have all those those boxes checked. But if we work with them on a few things and give them a shot, they'll often surprise themselves and definitely surprise us. Um, so I tried to lean more on my intuitiveness since joining Marvel and that like, hey, I see that person has some some of these skills. Let's push on this one and this one a little bit more to get them to a better place. And, it, and it, when it happens, you can see it like Pepe Larraz on the X-Men books. And now we're seeing it with people like Yvonne Coelho, uh, one of our new Stormbreakers. Their work just, you look at it and you go, wow, like that style and that level of creativity and ability was there. It's just that you needed some watering to, to kind of blossom. And now it's like, the sky's the limit. These guys are doing incredible covers and event books and things for us. So. It's a little bit of just fostering where, you know, someone has some base fundamentals and understanding, and then sometimes just getting lucky and saying, hey, that guy or gal is really good. Let's give him a shot. And then they knock it out of the park. Ricky, are you also working with the editors to work with these artists, especially at these like formative parts in their their Marvel career? Yeah, no, I, most people don't know this, but yeah, I, I touch almost all the books. You know, assistant editors will share cover colors and say, hey, I don't really understand why this isn't working and, you know, I'll give them some feedback or someone will finish a book and we'll say, we'll do a postmortem on it. We say, hey, can you send me some of those samples so we can take a look at it and maybe suggest some changes to the artist in the future, maybe suggest some phrases that the editor can use in the future to, to try to get something the right way they want it to, to look. And then continuing to just look like, you know, talent scout, look for new artists for them to work uh, on different projects. But I, another person on my team in the talent relations group, Dan Eddington is the managing editor. 
uh, there's a lot of scheduling that has to go into planning these books out because we're making so many books every single week. And there's so many different people making those books and making decisions creatively. So there's a lot of extra planning behind the scenes that, that goes into these books that, that my team works on. So I'm very lucky, but it's, it's a lot of stuff in our heads all the time. I mean, not to stray too far from the book, because there's a ton that I want to talk about. But like, <laughs> I did want to say out loud, that feels like the best that comics and the comics community and Marvel Comics can be right there, which is like this communal, uplifting kind of help each other, help the artist, help the editor, and learning on the job as well. Right. It's like something that I think is overlooked sometimes. You know, I think especially, you know, for people who are playing in the majors at Marvel Comics, I think it can be easy to think like that people come in and fully formed and it's just like, you know, you officially cross the threshold and you're there. So cool to see the growth. Yeah. Again, we are talking about Amazing Spider-Man 353 through 358. The arc is Round Robin, the sidekick's revenge. Before we get deeper into it, I do want to talk about a couple of the other people who are behind the story because it is written by Al Milgram and the, um, the inks throughout most of this are by Randy Emberlin. And I think Randy actually probably deserves a lot of credit on this arc as well because of we were talking about how Mark was doing 60 pages a month or or even more uh, (laughs) of penciling these comics. So Randy really like pulls things up and make sure it's all cohesive. And only when you really start to look closely at it, do you see, you know, like it's less of Mark, more of somebody else in here. So shout out to Randy for, for being an inker on this. Ricky, for any of our listeners, now that we're on Sirius XM, if they don't know exactly what a, a penciler does versus an inker, can you explain that real quick? Yeah. Um, you know, going back to the beginning of comic books um, and comic strips, a penciler would go in and do the art for the story after getting the script from a writer. But because of the production schedules was what it was, they needed to get these books done within a month. Not everyone was fast enough to ink themselves to go from a penciled image to a, a bold, sharper, inked final image. So they bring in inkers, you know, I would pencil one page, pass it off to Ryan, he would ink it, he would pass it off to Tucker, he would color it, and so on. So we get a book done uh, quickly like that. Then uh, as technology got better and, and sharper, people started making comic books on computers. The job of an inker kind of started going away a little bit, but the skill that's needed there to, to sharpen up an image, to control light sources, to make lines bolder or less bold, so, you know, fill in the backgrounds, all that is storytelling that an inker that has to has to manage. Um, and so, like you said, in a lot of these issues, Mark Bagley penciled the book and Randy inked it. But there are a lot of places where Mark just did layouts, which is a rough, you know, a circle for a head or a circle for a hand. And Randy did the finishes, which is he, he would go in there and draw the fingers. He would draw the eyes. Um, so Randy did do a lot of work on here, both as a finisher and an inker. To jump back more into the, to the narrative of this story, something that I that was striking to me was like the kind what felt like, I don't know if you could call it genre influences on this story or like the kind of just the way the characters look, the character designs. It made me think more about what I'm reading in amazing Spider-Man right now, what I read last week. And then in 30 years, like how I'll look back at that and be like, Oh, you know, in more of a vacuum, the kind of, oh, the, sh- the genre influences that were popular in 2020 or whatever. Was this something that, you know, in terms of this story, in terms of how much it feels like way beyond a, like, kind of Queens or New York City kind of classic Spidey tale, was that something that 
was particularly unique at the time when you were reading it? Do you remember that being like particularly striking and unusual? Or is this kind of a period of Spidey history where a bunch of a bunch of this kind of wacky stuff started to 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 come on? I think at this time in pop culture, you know, ninjas and cyborgs and stuff like that were definitely like popular, you know, especially among kids. As a kid, I, I definitely didn't look at genre influences. For me, it was there's guns and there's robots and Darkhawk is in this and I don't know anything about him. And there's like secret society. And then there's this guy who, um, you know, the best Marvel stories are this like can't must struggle. This guy felt betrayed by Moon Knight at one point and became this bad guy. And so you kind of feel for him, but you're also kind of like, oh, these superheroes have put him in a position. All that stuff is just very bold in this story. In terms of genre influence, though, I could certainly see how robots and ninjas and cyborgs and things were, were going on in, in movies at the time. I think part of it probably also comes because of Al Milgram, the, the writer of the story, who honestly, I think he probably doesn't get enough credit for just like how much he did. He was a workhorse, probably known mostly as an inker, but he also wrote and he penciled. He wrote this story. This was coming out. He was also inking Thor and X-Factor comics. So he was like doing a bunch of things. He was probably an editor at Marvel at some point. And you know, he starts in the 70s, the Secret Empire storyline that ran through Captain America probably had some influence in bringing those characters in. And he's just like, there's mm. a lot of like quips and fun stuff where he, he's just like, we're going to tell a fun, poppy, big, explosive, throw everything at the wall Marvel comic story. And that includes bringing in cyborg ninjas and ninja cyborgs and all kinds of other stuff and, <laughs> and having a just a great time. I, I wanted to mention Darkhawk specifically. Darkhawk is such an enigma to me. Darkhawk had like one of those six months periods where you started popping up in books again, but I am still piecing it together, still slowly starting to understand Darkhawk. Darkhawk's whole deal <laughs> is like origin, like what, what place he holds in the universe. So knowing that Darkhawk was involved in this story solidified the fact that it was like, okay, this is not the usual kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, I, Darkhawk was so cool when he debuted. It was like, one, readers like me and Ryan at the time were like, we can get a number one first appearance of a character. Don't let me awesome. in with this. I have no affinity <laughs> yeah. for, for Darkhawk. It's the weirdest thing. He's, he's of the time period you would think, I don't he care is. about Darkhawk. Like, he's got a cool design oh. and everything, but I didn't read his comic, and so, like, there's nothing... I don't connect to it. So don't, don't let me in with y'all. <laughs> Darkhawk is a teenage character who finds an amulet thing or ruby. I don't know what, I don't know what jewels are, but it's a, <laughs> it's a jewel of some kind. And it transforms him into this superhero called Darkhawk, where he's got like a Wolverine claw that kind of, he can shoot out and it grabs on stuff. And he's got this cool helmet and the amulet can shoot stuff. So yeah, he's, he's front and center in this story. It's great. It's great. At one point he transforms his body into Darkhawk and he's like, oh, what a body it is. <laughs> like he's just admiring himself. Uh, so speaking of the characters in the story, it is uh, amazing. Spider-Man. So we got Spider-Man. We also have Moon Knight. We have Moon Knight's former seemingly deceased sidekick, Midnight. We have the Secret Empire, a like clandestine group of bad guys who want to take over the world, who have like anonymity within their own society we have the punisher right. we have night thrasher of the new warriors we have nova of the new warriors we have a uh, depowered thunderball aka dr elliot franklin uh one of the wrecking crew who is one of my favorite characters in this story and your favorite yeah. dark hawk this is so much in six issues it's <laughs> wild captain america shows up at one point he for does. some stuff there's some other yeah. bad guys who are like robot looking like... oh my god oh the seekers 
I love them, but I was like, I don't remember these characters at all. Right, right. I think they were Iron Man bad guys because they look like they would be Iron Man bad guys. That's what so, like, some of the fun of the story is that like, if you weren't reading all that stuff, you got it all in one book. Talking about the huge range of characters and stuff, this is classic, like, of the era Spider-Man comics. This is a book that I feel like I would love to read for that, like, direct hit of what that is. And it comes through in the art, in the characters. This is tapping into a vein of a time, like, a place, like, that is just so specific to Marvel Comics. And I feel like it's, like, early Avenger stories are like that. Certain other ones are like that. Um, and this really felt like that. It, it's that thing. It, it just feels so like homey and cozy. And I really, really, really had a good time with it. Yeah, it's very, I, I hate to say the word 90s, but it's, it's very 90s and in, in little things like the hairstyles. And when they would show a shot of like the New York City skyline, it's a very specific kind of New York City skyline. It's presented in a very specific way. Still very dynamic and Marvel, but it's it's certainly not the 60s. New York City, you know what I mean? It's certainly not the 2000s New York City. It's a very much a 90s New York City. So l- little things like that in the backgrounds are, are the flavoring that kind of gives it that that kind of nostalgic feel, I think. Yeah. The first issue is really just, uh, you know, getting some setup. We're introduced to Midnight, who is the former sidekick to Moon Knight, uh, seemingly had died and is now pissed off. He has been given cyborg parts by the secret empire um and you see him you know fighting and all kinds of stuff what i i really love bagley doing in this first issue is one his design work on the secret empire and like their costumes even the like the dudes who are on their little flying saucers yeah. those little scooters i love those they're so cool and then seeing bagley draw spider-man and his costume and spidey's webs to me you can sort of see Mark transitioning from Eric Larson. There's a lot of, in my mind, like Eric Larson vibes in in the way he draws Spidey as he's like getting his exact way he draws Spidey. Like once you get into the carnage arc, which Mm. is 10 issues later or so, it's all Mark. But here I was looking at, especially on this first issue, some of the poses, some of the line work on the costumes, like there's, you can see him like coming off of Eric Larson's vibe and, and going from there. There's like a roundness to the muscles in places too, like Larson would do, like the forearms and the shoulders and the knees and stuff. It all, it all kind of that super round look like Larson used to do. But good call on this, the webbing. Like the webbing looks very much like Larson. That makes me think, Ricky, do you have a an era-specific favorite Spider-Man? Yeah, it's this one. It's it's Bagley. <laughs> uh, and it's it's Maximum Carnage specifically. Like I've, I think I've reread that spider-man story more than any spider-man story so it's just burned into my the back of my eyes so yeah it's 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 this period yeah (laughs) for any of our listeners who have not heard us talk about maximum carnage tucker and i were joined by editor mark basso to talk about that storyline a couple of months ago and you can hear us talk about how much violence and murder (laughs) there is in the page for this comic aimed at children yes yes uh, which so good um we jump into the second part of this which is 354 the puns uh across this entire (laughs) (laughs) right exhausting it's 
So there's so many puns in the dialogue, but even when you're getting into the titles of the issues, this is Wild at Heart, uh, but Midnight's real name is Jeff Wild with an E, and so it's Wild <laughs> at Heart, and man, there's a lot going on here. This issue, there's so many characters and things are just starting to build, but Spidey Fastball Special's Darkhawk yep. is uh, one of my highlights of the issue. Yeah, and Tucker, I think you kind of touched on this earlier, but the the writing is very much of its time, too, in that... They don't rely on, you know, a previously seen in kind of caption box. They just, in the dialogue, talk about what's going on. So if you didn't pick up issue one, you only got issue two. Someone tells you what happened in issue one. Throughout the issue, people will go, hey, as you might recall, when we talked at the precinct last issue, blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's, it's got a lot of that. And I, I appreciate that. Something that came to mind when I was reading this, in a way that felt very of the era, in a way that I really love, it feels like story kind of comes first when reading this as opposed to character. You know, when a, when these bunch of characters kind of enter this story, obviously they have discussions and they, they deal with things in slightly different ways, but it feels like once they kind of go across the filter of the story, they're in service of the story. And it just got me thinking about reading something like this today and how I feel like maybe the instinct might be for characters to kind of lead a little bit more. And it, I, I don't know if that's necessarily accurate, but it just made me think about the changes of, of kind of stories like this over time. And I just wanted to get your thoughts, Ricky, on when you read this, what stands out to you as like the biggest changes between this book now versus if, say, Nick Spencer and Matt Rosenberg wanted to, to tell this exact story today in the way that they might do it? I think what you would describe is actually absolutely correct in that this was plot driven first. They had a plot that they wanted to, to, to tell. You're absolutely right too that uh, nowadays, I think probably it was in the 2000s if you if you agree, Ryan, when writers started focusing on who the characters were and then let the story go from there. So yeah, the storytelling has definitely matured. I think storytelling has matured in all mediums of entertainment these days. Our society has just kind of gotten, I think, more pessimistic and so look for you know stories that are a little bit darker and, and it'll swing back around again it always does you know at one time the monsters is on television and another time you know true blood is on hbo and it's like a filthy <laughs> uh sexy uh soap, soap opera so yeah it, it just swings around don't worry we're gonna get to the sexy soap <laughs> opera in this story soon uh parts three and four it's really just like Lots of chaos. The Seekers show up. There's a lot of infighting between the Secret Empire, which I love. There's a little thing I noticed in part four, which is called After Midnight. Again, love them puns. Um, <laughs> in the bottom left panel of page two of issue 356, that's part four, you have Spider-Man has his feet placed. So he's actually truly standing between Moon Knight and I think it's Night Thrasher at this point. And he's not just holding them apart with his hands and standing back. There's just like, it's a subtle arrangement of characters. And that's, it's such a small, minute thing. But to me, I look at it and go, that's someone who took the time to arrange that that way and made it look awesome. It's a really subtle thing. And I'm glad you pointed that out. It's important as early as possible in an issue to establish the relative size of your characters to one another even if it's just a couple of them. That way, when those characters are standing next to another character later, you understand the continuity of the space that they're all inhabiting. So by showing Spider-Man head to toe next to Night Thrasher and Moon Knight, if Night Thrasher goes over to talk to Punisher, who's, in, who's not in the panel with them, you kind of get the sense of how big Punisher would be versus 
Spidey. So it's this really subtle way of just establishing continuity in, in the storytelling. Um, I want to run. I want to make sure we hit the rest of this before we have to let you go, Ricky. This book does get a little wild uh, when you get into uh, parts four and five. Part four has uh, a sequence where uh, Midnight takes one of the Secret Empire dudes, smashes Ugh. his head against a wall, and the sound effect is splock. <laughs> And then there's a blood smear behind him and he's smiling with his weird cyborg teeth. It is wild. Yeah. And then the next issue is one of the horniest comics <laughs> I've read in a long time. The title of the issue is A Bagel with Nova, which is the most brutal pun <laughs> in the world. And and, uh, and it's presented in a word balloon. Spider-Man is screaming it. <laughs> right. says, a Bagel with Nova! It's in bright orange letters. <laughs> It's nuts. You got all this going on. There's insane side and under boob for Mary Jane. Yeah. At one point, she's wearing this like little tank top. And then like Spider-Man comes home. He wakes her up and she's like, oh, your food's cold. Sorry about that. He's like, right now, I'm in the mood for something warm. And oh she goes, mm. and, they kiss. and then they kiss. And then the, then the scene changes to Mark Spector and Marlene. And he's like, uh, I need some time off. And she's like, what can I do to help? He's like, I just need the comfort that only a woman can give. And then they start getting it on. <laughs> yep. And then they go back to Spider-Man and Mary Jane and they're in bed, like post whatever. <laughs> and he, he, she's like, oh, you got to go be Spider-Man again. And he's like, you weren't complaining about the Spidey action, Justin. She's like, shut up. This is such a horny <laughs> issue. And as a kid, I did not pick up on any of no. that. No. Wow. And it's so over the top, though, too, that if you did, you'd be like, yeah, that's how adults talk when they're getting into sexy time. You, just, you, you say puns to each other. Yeah. That's normal. It's, yeah, it's totally normal. And then the rest of the book, like from this, from that point on, like the last third of this issue is just epic fight book. And it's so much fun. Yep. Guns, laser guns. Thunderball has that like ball that comes out of his gauntlet and shoots everywhere. It's nuts. Yeah. Going into that final issue, reading it on Marvel Unlimited, as I did, is um, is great and specifically great when you see that gatefold cover. It's so cool. It looks oh, so man. good. I remember that so clearly. Like I was waiting for that moment rereading this of like, when are we going to get to the big fold out cover? Because it was just like, it felt so big to me as a kid. And it's such a beautiful image. You have the trade, right, Ricky? I do. How do they reproduce that? In the trade, it's just printed in the middle. The title kind of falls into the into the gutter of the, the book, but um, it's still impressive. Like it's, it's all the all characters running from the left to the right, and you're like, okay, this is the climatic conclusion. Like, what's going to happen with all these all this fight that got set up in the la in the last issue? Yeah, it looks really cool. Yeah, this storyline doesn't have a lot of big splash pages. Mm -hmm. Like, there's just so much for them to tell. There's a lot of like real estate to cover. But the, the opening of this has this great opening, like where you see all the characters, a quick sum up of who it is, and then boom, you get this beautiful double page splash. It feels so big and like really gives you the sense that this is a fight for everybody's lives. It's really well done. Yeah, it's like a moment to exhale. It's like, okay, like the story has, has all this weight and they, they give it space. It's great. One thing that is something I always think about is just like story beats within action all the time and how that can be like really difficult to do. There's a very funny one where it kind of like is a comedic moment for Frank Castle of all people, but it just works. It's so funny where I think it's Sonic. He gets his like armor just like shattered. And it's a combination of one, this page is so funny, but also 
there's a, a shinko as his like armor disintegrates. Shatters, yeah, it's yeah. so good. And then he says, "I bet this sort of thing never happens to Iron Man." Do you think? And then there's a big whop as Punisher punches him off of the page. It's so good and it's so funny. And then we're just right back into the action. I love that specifically. That beat. Yeah, it's great. Um, there's a kind of lightheartedness to it too. Like the action goes from action to like this comedy bit and Bagley does this really nice way of just kind of shifting how intense that scene is so that the comedy can breathe. It's really nice. Uh, the end of the issue is just big fights, some really cool stuff. There's a great moment that I love where Night Thrasher and Punisher are like, I'd kill people. You'd kill people. Are we best friends now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, All yeah. right, we'll see you later. <laughs> bye, bye, pal, uh, which I really loved. And then there's a shot of two cyborg arms locked on each other, which now just realize is tied to the title of the issue, which is out on a limb. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like I just turned into a ghost. <laughs> yeah, they're doing that like predator like uh, yeah, yeah. handshake on the yep. on the mid forearm, uh, but severed. It's great. <laughs> and then yeah, and Spidey's like, okay, I guess it's time to go home and go back to our regular lives again. I don't know, monthly shipping. <laughs> Very cool story. Lots of guest stars. Lots of bad guys. Double crossing, triple crossing, and you get everyone's origins at some point. You hear about how they became a, car- a hero in the Marvel universe. Um, and then just really beautiful art. Super fun. Yeah, it was great. Great pick, Ricky. Thank you guys for reading it. I was worried. I was like, I think I don't want to do this. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is awesome. Yeah. And then everybody out there, uh, if you have Marvel Unlimited, go read them right now. It's issues 353 through 358 of Amazing Spider-Man. And then, you know, follow Ricky on social media. Tell him you love comics. All right, Ricky. Tell Sam I said hello. Thanks for coming, Rick. Love you, Ricky. Bye. Love you. Bye. Ricky Purden, one of the best in the world. Tucker, I would even call Ricky a ding-dang delight. Oh, he is the definition of what a pleasure to talk to him. Yeah. Uh, this episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, Amar Daniel, and Megan Bagala, with help from Alexis Williams. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. He really tried to get us to put a fourth L in our email address we refused you're a nightmare drew a line in the sand three L's we're sticking to it (laughs) I'm Ryan I'm Tucker and this is Marvel your universe